Hello, welcome to The Briefing. I'm Tom Tilley. It is Wednesday, the 12th of August. And today we're going to brief you on Jeffrey Epstein. This week marks one year since he died in a New York prison. You're going to find out more about the case involving the two guards who were supposed to be watching him. I would recommend to people following the mysteries surrounding Jeffrey Epstein's death to keep a close eye on that case because it hasn't gone anywhere. If anything, it has been prolonged by the fact of the COVID-19 epidemic and uh, court cases move slowly. Jeffrey Epstein, that's coming up in just a moment. Right now, Annika Smethurst is here with the big stories of the day. Morning, Tom. Let's start our Wednesday in Russia, which claims it's got the world's very first coronavirus vaccine. So we're the first who have registered. I hope our foreign colleagues' work will move as well, and a lot of products will appear on an international market that could be used. This is a very interesting development. President Vladimir Putin says it's highly effective and he's so confident it works that his own daughter has already been inoculated. Head of the government fund backing the vaccine, Kirill Dimitrov, has told Today USA millions of people will be able to get the vaccine by the end of the year. We'll produce up to 30 million doses of vaccine and then, you know, it will be up to people who wants to be vaccinated. But in principle, we can vaccinate tens of millions of people in Russia this year. Around the world, doctors are sceptical that Russia has cut corners to rush this vaccine to market. Uh, phase three trials on humans haven't even happened yet. They'll be done as the vaccine is rolled out. Annika, where are the other main trials around the world up to? Are any of those at stage three where they test on a large number of humans? Look, if you're looking at Australia, they are really getting behind the Oxford one. Earlier this year, we spoke to somebody who was involved in that trial. There are over 100 COVID vaccine trials globally, but Australia is really investing in them. There was a few stories around yesterday to say we've already done the groundwork to get it here if it's available. It's going to be produced in maybe up to 30 different factories in Australia, and they're already preparing storage facilities. So I think we're going to throw our weight behind that one, not the Russian one. Still overseas in New Zealand's epic run of 102 days without a coronavirus case is over with four members of the same family testing positive. Last night, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern announced restrictions are returning. As of 12 noon Wednesday, August 12th, we will be moving Auckland to level three restrictions for a period of three days. One of the most important lessons we've learned from overseas is the need to go hard and go early. Fascinating stuff over there in New Zealand. We're learning more about this every day. Look, the rest of the country will now return to stage two. Here's Director General of Health, Ashley Bloomfield. We are working over the next few days to test all people working at our borders and in our managed isolation facilities to help us trace the possible origin of this case where we don't currently know the source. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Just four cases and they put a whole city into stage three. And the fact it hasn't been there for 100 days, it really makes the idea of elimination almost impossible if this thing's going to rear its head after so much time. And also what I find interesting is they're going to put these restrictions in just until Friday. So it's just a few days of these restrictions before they sort of look to see if there's a result and they can change that strategy. And, and you wonder how this sort of elimination strategy can really work in the long term? Like, will this be happening on a really regular basis in New Zealand? And how disruptive will that be to New Zealand life? Now, after a long truce, shots were fired yesterday between the federal and state governments over Victoria's 
bungled hotel quarantine scheme, which is being blamed for this second wave. Yesterday, Premier Daniel Andrews was quizzed about why private security guards were brought in and not the police or the army to man hotels. I don't believe ADF support was on offer. An ADF support has been provided in very limited circumstances in New South Wales, not to provide security as such, but to provide transportation from the airport to, to hotels. So Daniel Andrews there saying that ADF support wasn't on offer. Uh, the federal government contradicted him very quickly. Defence Minister Linda Reynolds pointed to this March press conference from Prime Minister Scott Morrison just days after the national lockdown was announced. We will be supporting them also by providing um, members of the Australian Defence Force to assist in the compliance with these arrangements. I was at that press conference. That was on March 27. Now, Defence said it was told on March 28 that no assistance was needed in Victoria, and that was the same day it was taken up by other states, including New South Wales and Queensland. Wow, so two very different stories there from Daniel Andrews relative to the federal government. Yeah, I guess perhaps Victoria, giving Daniel Andrews the benefit of the doubt, perhaps he's saying he didn't understand exactly what that offer meant. It was obviously beyond transport, but I think pressure is definitely growing on the Victorian Premier here over why they didn't take up that offer when the other states did. So could there be a reasonable explanation? I know that there are different levels where these communications happen from a cabinet level in government to a departmental level. Is that where it could have been lost in translation? Look, it'd be hard for that to be the case given the other states got the right end of the stick and Mm. Victoria obviously didn't take up this offer. There is a judicial review underway. Uh, It's due to report later this year to get to the bottom of all these issues. All right, in just a moment, Jeffrey Epstein. The death of Jeffrey Epstein exposed a dark underbelly among some of the world's most powerful people. The FBI now want to question Prince Andrew. Epstein's former girlfriend, British socialite Ghislaine Maxwell, is potentially facing decades in prison and it could affect Donald Trump's chances of being elected in November. But for many of us watching here in Australia, it was his mysterious death one year ago this week in a New York jail that first got our attention. Some breaking news right now. Disgraced financier Jeffrey Epstein has taken his own life. He was facing multiple sex offence charges. New York City's medical examiner has now confirmed Jeffrey Epstein died by suicide. Given way to conspiracy. Epstein's attorneys questioning whether his death was a suicide. The president helping to spread an outrageous full story about Epstein's death being tied to the Clintons. You know, we could be talking about, like, who shot JFK. It could just be lasting forever. So as you can hear there, it was the mysterious death of Jeffrey Epstein that really blew this story wide open and captured the world's attention. But let's go back and find out what happened before that point. We'll also find out what's happened since, including Ghislaine Maxwell and her trial, and also that of the two New York prison guards that were meant to be watching Jeffrey Epstein. Adam Klasfeld is a reporter with Courthouse News. He's followed the legal process very closely. Adam, thanks for joining us. Can you take us back to the beginning of Jeffrey Epstein's story? There's so many interesting details, like I never realised he was a teacher before he got into finance. What can you tell us about his life before he became rich and infamous? Well, the early stage of Jeffrey Epstein's life, he 
became a physics and mathematics teacher at the Dalton School, a upscale Upper East Side school in Manhattan. And how he got that job, uh, he actually inflated his credentials. And this was just an early instance of him, one, being a teacher in front of young girls, and then the other early part of the story just showing him rising from a rather unknown figure to the upper echelons of society. From his brief time at the Dalton School, he parlayed that into a job at Bear Stearns. In fact, a new development in a case today talks about his association with a billionaire, Lex Wexner, who was the CEO of Victoria's Secret. Uh, Les Wexner, for reasons still not very clear, entrusted him with power of attorney. Uh, a very successful billionaire CEO basically trusting this then unknown money manager in the 1990s to make really important decisions for him as power of attorney. So we see a very early rise of Epstein allegedly through deception, going from nowhere to a teacher at a very prominent high school in New York City, rising to the financial elite with Bear Stearns, and then subsequently through his association with Les Wexner. And that sort of sets the stage for Epstein's later association, not only with young women when he becomes accused of being a sex trafficker, but also popping up seemingly out of nowhere to essentially be a fixture for these very powerful people. So it was in the 90s that he was actually dating Ghislaine Maxwell. She's now, uh, I guess, in trouble for some of the things she may have done when keeping his company. What do we know about the way they met and the nature of their relationship back then? What the prosecution of uh, Epstein's associate, Ghislaine Maxwell, uh, accuses her right now of that she was, of course, his former uh, girlfriend, and that she is accused of essentially grooming and abusing these young women um, in what has been called a sex trafficking pyramid scheme. She is accused of two counts of perjury along with the charges accusing her of abusing these young women. One of the prominent accusers, uh, Virginia Giuffre, uh, claims that Gillian Maxwell essentially recruited her while she was working in President Trump's Mar-a-Lago back at the time when Trump was a private citizen. The allegations in uh, Maxwell's indictment date back, as you said, to the 1990s. We talk about Jeffrey Epstein perhaps uh, being able to work his way into different societies in America through his sweet talking and in embellishing his resume. What was it, do you right. think, that drew him to Ghislaine Maxwell and what doors did she open up? Was it a, a mutually beneficial relationship? Well, Ghislaine Maxwell's, of course, the daughter of uh, Robert Maxwell, so the publishing magnate. She comes from a very prominent line. She's a very prominent person herself. She's very often described as the British socialite. This was the alignment of money and power. Uh, Maxwell was a member of the London social scene in the 1980s. And so in, in terms of uh, her relationship with Epstein, 
they are said to have started a, a romantic relationship in the 1990s. The allegations of the indictment start around the mid-1990s. Uh, she is accused of grooming these young girls for Epstein's predation. Ghislaine Maxwell is now facing charges. For helping Jeffrey Epstein sexually exploit and abuse multiple minor girls. So tell us about the 2008 Epstein case where he pled guilty and was convicted to procuring an underage girl for prostitution. So this was obviously a very controversial plea deal. As you said, he pleaded guilty to one count of procuring an underage girl for the purposes of prostitution, a charge that characterizes these uh, underage victims as prostitutes. Um, The other peculiar thing about this plea deal, uh, other than uh, giving him a very light sentence where he was allowed to be released from jail on a work release program, was that it purported to insulate his co-conspirators through a non-prosecution agreement that it was not only giving him a light sentence for uh, the allegations, it was saying that it would shield any other person who helped him, who helped groom his victims, or who participated in any abuse linked to him. So given how he got off relatively lightly in 2008 with that sweetheart plea deal, as you characterize it, did that slow down at all his sleazy lifestyle? Well, one of the interesting things in the reporting that we've seen subsequently to that is after his release, he seemed to be welcomed back into society with open arms. Um, And there were various reports that he was welcomed back into a high society, despite having a conviction of being a convicted uh, sex offender who admitted to sexually abusing underage girls. Critics wondered if his money had tainted justice in this case. Now, word that the registered sex offender, just weeks into his sentence, is allowed to leave jail on work release six days a week, has some judicial watchers shaking their heads. Last year, of course, he was arrested just before he died. That might have been about the time, I guess, a lot of Australians started to take notice in this story. So can you tell us a little bit about what exactly the those charges were last year? So the charges against Epstein last year accused him of sex trafficking. Um, And that was, you know, no longer was it in the realm of soliciting prostitution. They're not characterizing the victims as some sorts of underage prostitutes, uh, a concept that is totally incompatible with consent. Um, But it was now being characterized as a sex trafficking ring and that he was uh, essentially the leader of a sex trafficking uh, conspiracy that has been sometimes uh, described as a pyramid scheme of sexual abuse, where essentially Epstein and Maxwell would find young girls who they would pay for massages that would escalate into sexual assault. And then those victims were sent out to find other underage girls. And given some of the influential people he associated with, President Trump, Prince Andrew, I guess that created a lot of theories around his death when he died in jail. 
especially one that President Trump as recently as last week was pushing again, that perhaps he was killed. So can you tell us what do we actually know about the circumstances around his death in jail? And can we 100% rule out the possibility that he wasn't murdered? Well, his death has been ruled as suicide. Um, As for the circumstances of his death, there has, since the time that it happened, uh, the government has essentially filed charges against two of the guards. They basically are being accused of false records. There are six different counts of all of the missteps, and it's the indictment is a kind of point-by-point recitation of what happened on that night, that they uh, prosecutors accuse them of signing false certifications, that they conducted counts of the inmates at different times of the night, that uh, Jeffrey Epstein was assigned to what's known as the SHU, Special Housing Unit, essentially solitary confinement after his being placed on suicide watch. Quite infamously, he was uh, taken off of suicide watch before his death. But what we see in this indictment is a moment-by-moment accounting of what the guards essentially allegedly shirking their duty in his final hours. People are still trying to figure out how did it happen? Was it suicide? Was he killed? And this story brings in Donald Trump. There's numerous photos of Donald Trump socialising with Jeffrey Epstein He knew Ghislaine Maxwell as well. Several times as recently as last week in the interview with Jonathan Swan, he said that he wishes Ghislaine Maxwell well in her trial. Yeah, I wish you well. I'd wish you well. I'd wish a lot of people well. Good luck. And I do wish you well. I'm not looking for anything bad for her. Could elements of her trial affect the US election? As you said earlier, that has certainly uh, cast in embarrassing light on many uh, well-known public figures. Uh, the fact that the president of the United States keeps wishing well someone who's accused of participating in a sex trafficking conspiracy uh, might certainly resonate in voters' minds during a U.S. election. Absolutely. We do know that As I said earlier, one of the prominent accusers, Virginia Giuffre, says that her introduction into this world was at Mar-a-Lago. That's where she was allegedly recruited by Ghislaine Maxwell. And we do have that history of photographs, videos, and interviews. There was an interview where Trump, as a private citizen, uh, said that Jeffrey Epstein is always around uh, beautiful women, some on the younger side, was his quote. Just to give you a sense of the scale of it, uh, for the recent releases and newly unsealed files, there are lots of Jane Doe accusers. One of the documents talks about Doe number 151. Uh, Does that mean that there are 151 different accusers? We don't know. These are anonymous parties. But from all prior reporting in this, uh, their scale of the number of victims could be enormous and they could be um, more than 100. And just finally, we're really going to see this play out, I guess, uh, as you say, you know, in the lead up to the election. But looking at the position of Ghislaine Maxwell, what does she face if she is sentenced? And do we expect 
as you say, up to 150 victims to testify. She's sort of been living on the down low for a while and, and recently been found by police. So what does the future hold for her, do we think? She could face decades in prison if convicted of all charges. I think it's a maximum sentence of north of 30 years. Now, in terms of the number of women who are going to testify against her, uh, the indictment charges conduct within a limited period of time from the mid to late uh, 1990s. So I don't expect it's going to be uh, that long a parade of witnesses with this case. I think that the uh, trial will show a slice of what has been alleged in other cases and in reporting. I think that we are certainly going to see it in detail that has not yet emerged and that will be what the victims view as a uh, long reckoning over a long delayed case. That was Adam Klasfeld, a reporter from the Courthouse News and Annika There's two trials to watch very closely here, the one of Glay Maxwell and also the prison guards. And given how often Donald Trump's been bringing it up, it will be interesting to see how that intersects with his campaign later this year. All right, that is it for today. Annika, could you imagine your Dalmatian detecting the COVID-19 virus? My Dalmatian doesn't even know where his tail is. It sometimes surprises him. So (laughs) no, not my dog, but hopefully other dogs. Yeah, tomorrow on the show, we'll look at dogs who are being trained to detect COVID-19. Maybe they could save us from this whole pandemic. A Podcast One production.